Welcome to the show. You're listening to the Hope Radio Podcast. Real stories, real people, real, real hope. My name is Sean Davis. I happen to be your humble host. And joining me as my hostess in life, my beautiful wife, she's along with me every single day. Her name is... Jess. Jen. Oh, I love that. You are just Jen. You are true and authentic to yourself. And I love it. I love being me. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, And I'm glad you love being you because you wouldn't be very happy to be around if you didn't love being you. That's true. So it's important to love yourself first. Yes. Then you have capacity to love others. It's hard to be anyone else but yourself. I know. There's only one Jen Davis. It's my superpower. It is. Yes. Hannifer. Hennifer? Hennifer. Are we speaking Espanol? Yes, we oh, are. See? It's good to shake it up every once in a while. Hennifer. <laughs> <laughs> see, usually when Jen's in trouble, I call her Jennifer. Now, if I'm calling you Hennifer in Spanish. I'm just going to laugh. <laughs> <laughs> you usually just laugh at me anyway, even if I call True. you Jennifer. Jennifer, what did you do? <laughs> <laughs> it's usually something funny. Really? That's what I've done. Yes. Something really funny, which I call stupid funny because you don't think it's funny, but I think it's stupid funny. See, because I'm the serious one. Yes. I just I just saw a post yesterday on Instagram that says Why that if you so have a happy- serious? Can I finish? <laughs> <laughs> See, you are serious. I just did a stupid funny. I know you did, and I laughed at it. <laughs> Was that for radio or did I really laugh? Oh, I'm real no matter what. I'm 100% authentic and real. So what you see here and what you see there is all me. Yes, and that's what I love about you. But that was a real (laughs) laugh, by the way. Okay, thanks for clarifying. I've totally forgot what I was going to say now. But like, regardless, I just love looking at you. (laughs) (laughs) I think we should tell some funny jokes. All right, let's do that. You want to go first? I I won the joke off yesterday. So do you want to go first? No, you can go first. Ladies first, go. No. What does that mean? <laughs> Ladies first go. What are you trying to say to me? Okay, you want me to go? Yeah, you go ahead. Okay. Are you ready? I'm ready. Okay. Why doesn't McDonald's serve escargot? Because people don't like escargot. Who would want to order escargot to go? You eat it. Escargot. Cargo. This has something to do with the drive through line, doesn't it? No. Is there some punchline that has to do with drive? Because cargo. No. Cargo. Is that, what it's, is that where we're going? No. All right. What's the answer? Because it's not fast food. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> <laughs> that was so funny. <laughs> I beg to differ. That was so funny. I laughed at my own joke. Did you? Yeah. I can tell. <laughs> you were still laughing. Look at you. Oh, it's so funny. All right. You ready for mine? I guess so. What do you see? This is going to be good. You're still laughing. laughing. You're still laughing from the last one. I know. So that, I got a good chance right here of winning the joke off. No, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to compose myself. Go. Why do, and this this actually is very appropriate because this weekend we saw this. Okay. 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 has to do with cows. Okay. All right. Okay. Why Everyone in radio land's wondering what the heck we're talking about. But why do cows wear bells? Why do cows wear bells? Remember all those cows we saw on yeah. the road? Yeah. They all have bells on. Why do cows wear bells? Well, I know I know the real reason. Why? Because you want to make sure you can hear them when you're hurting That's them. That's not the funny reason, though. I know, but you gotta get to the funny funny. We're why? telling jokes here. Why? Why do cows wear bells? Because if they wore 
balls? Jennifer, <laughs> where are you going with this joke? I'm trying to It's think. gone off the rails. Okay, you just tell me the answer. Okay, why do cares? I can't even talk now. You got me all distracted <laughs> with a ball comment or whatever. Why do cows wear bells? I was thinking of, I don't know. <laughs> because their horns don't work. Uh, why don't they work? They do work. Have you seen them come charging at you? The horns don't make noise. But they work. That's why, no. Not a horn. <laughs> not that kind of a horn. Don't be literal now on me. You can't just all of a sudden take a left turn on literal. It's a joke. Silly. Mine was funnier. No, it was not. Yeah, escargot is not fast food. It's funny. Like snail. <laughs> it's slow. You're still making yourself laugh. I know. I'm oh going to start gosh. crying. So who are we interviewing today? <laughs> yeah, we might as well move on to that. This is this has gone off the rails. Uh, we are, we have the privilege. Yes. So we just interviewed Shane Charles. Yes. Shane Charles just recently got engaged mm-hmm. to somebody by the name of Callie Brown. <gasps> so Callie and Shane are getting married. We get to interview Callie. Yay. About her life. And boy. She has had some challenges, and I think she's going to be an awesome hope dealer for the podcast because um, anybody that's been through the challenges that she has Mm -hmm. at such a young age weathered them with the type of mindset and love of God that this girl has. Yeah. Oh, my gosh. She's going to deal some hope to our audience right now. We all need hope. Shall we get her on the line? Yeah, let's call her. All right, I'll, I'll call her right now. Here we go. All right, it's my pleasure to welcome to the Hope Radio Podcast, Callie Brown. Callie, welcome to our show. How are you doing today? I'm doing great today. Thank you for having me. Oh, it's our pleasure to have you on. And uh, we were both very, very interested, Jen and I, to Mm -hmm. hear your story because we've been listening to you on our morning clubhouse. You know, every morning, 6 a.m. Pacific, we join the Living Lucky Club and talk about ULA, Living a Balanced Lifestyle. And you've been on, and some of your shares, oh my gosh, you know, powerful, and they really resonated. And so we were we were excited to have you on the show and have a chat with you. Awesome. I'm glad to have the opportunity. It's funny, when I first got invited to Clubhouse, I never intended to speak at all, being very introverted and shy. But I don't know, all the topics they talk on, it's... It hits me very deep, so I feel like it's my duty or purpose to share that with others. But yeah, I'm loving it so far. Well, you've been you've been a great contributor, and I think that you speak very, very well, and your shares have been spot on. So you keep shining, girl, because uh, we we like hearing your voice and like hearing what you have to say in the mornings. For the benefit of our audience, tell us a little bit about where you live and a little bit about your family. You got any kids? You married? That kind of stuff. I am currently living in Katy's, Kentucky, a little small town, and everybody mispronounces the name because it's spelled C-A-D-I-Z, um, but it's pronounced like a female name, Katie. Uh, I am originally from Nashville, Tennessee, and have only called Kentucky home for the last three years. I moved here after leaving my kid's father, and I have three children, all boys. I had hoped for a girl, but <laughs> that didn't happen. And I'm currently engaged, and he also has a five-year-old son. So our home is usually 
bursting with noise and excitement. <laughs> we know the feeling. So I don't know if you know this about Jen and I, but we have four boys mm-hmm. ourselves. So it sounds oh, wow. like you've got a family of four boys. So our oldest yep. is 25, then uh, soon to be 24, yes. then 17 and 15. So we had two real quick, got very overwhelmed, backed off for six and a half years, and then decided to have two more. All the while, Jen was chasing that girl. <laughs> it didn't happen. Oh, wow. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I wanted a girl, but my kid's father uh, pushed for me to get my tubes tied, so I didn't have the girl. And Shane has a boy, so we have the four boys already, mm-hmm. but I still kind of hope, and we talked a little bit about maybe doing in vitro or something, and hopes of a girl or at least a child we share together, even if it's a boy. Mm-hmm. But I had my kids back-to-back. Um, my oldest was two years and two months when my middle one was born. And then I got pregnant with my third son when my middle son was only five months old. So they're 14 and a half months old. So by the time he was born, I had a three and a half year old, a 14 and a half month old, and a newborn. So we oh my <laughs> gosh. Wow, yeah. That, <laughs> yeah. Now, occasionally Jen still gives me a wink, wink. She's like, you know, we could still go for a girl. And I'm like, are you crazy right now? Come on. You know, people ask us all the time if we're done. I'm like, physically, we've done nothing to ensure it. But mentally, I'm totally done. You know, no more, no more right. kids for us. But I think Jen has resigned herself to the fact that she is a boy mom. And that has been her purpose. Yes. She's a Viking princess with a axe and a sword. So she raises, you know, fierce boys. I think that's her mission. I, I'm leaving it up to God because God is, he's going to. What? You're still holding out hope we're going to have a girl? If he wants that, then that's what we get. Jennifer, we are not <laughs> can happen. going down that path. I'm not going to be 80 when my kid graduates. True, true, right? True. Very true. We could. Yep. That now way you get to feel like having a kid and then, you know, make a difference in a child's life. And yeah. Tell them you want to foster a girl and. That way she gets her feelings for a girl. Yeah. yeah. I'm also holding out for grandbabies, too. I mean, our oldest is 25, right. so <laughs> we, that could happen, too. We, we have no imminent grandchildren at present. We have no <laughs> long-term relationships or anything of the sort. I thought we were going to be grandparents by now, but it just has not happened yet. So we'll see. You know, that's the hope train of moving on down the tracks right now. So maybe there's hope that that happens, you know, like the hope train is going to give us some hope, right? So um, I I know you've got a story of hope, speaking of hope, and um, I know it hasn't always been that way. I know you've come through some significant adversity in your life, primarily with, I think, your marriages, um, because correct me if I'm wrong, you've been married and now divorced three times, and... I think in our conversation that we had offline, you said, you know, the worst of which was the marriage that you had to your, to the father of your boys. And so you can start wherever you'd like to start, but you know, I know your story includes, um, a grandiose narcissist. And so, you know, I'd love to hear more about what that means and what that was like, but you go ahead and start sharing wherever you'd like to share. Absolutely. Before I get into the marriages, I feel it's an important part of my story to share that my life's traumas started in my childhood. 
And I think that's a big part of how I ended up in the relationship that I was in. So when I was about six, I was molested by a cousin. And then uh, around the age of 10 to 12, I'm not sure the exact age because it all kind of blurs. There's a lot of my childhood I blocked out completely. Um, and it sucks because I blocked out the good with the bad. Um, but somewhere around that time, uh, two things happened. One, uh, my parents had a guy that they knew babysit me and my brothers because they had to go to the food stamp office to apply. My dad was uh, disabled and couldn't work and they were trying to get food stamps and so the guy ended up um, molesting me and he was 50 years old so whereas the part with my cousin was bad enough but had such an older man you know it it was hard it was very damaging I while a lot of girls were, you know, wearing pretty clothes and learning to put on makeup and uh, make themselves more attractive to attract boys or whatever, I was wearing oversized sweatshirts and baggy pants and nothing that could, you know, make me look attractive. I remember one day trying to put on, well, I did put on makeup and I put on a dress. And when I looked in the mirror, I just got this overwhelming nauseating feeling and it made me feel sick and dirty and I took it all off and it would be years before I'd even try again but then um and when I was 10 also uh, the second thing that happened is my mom and dad both were alcoholics um and potheads um but my mom was drinking one night and she told me that she cried when I was born, because I was born in the middle of two brothers, um, that she cried when I was born because she didn't want a daughter. And she didn't elaborate on it. So here I am, 10 years old, thinking my mother doesn't want me. Um, she, I'm pretty certain, was a covert narcissist. Uh, one of those people that's always, you know, oh, poor me, I'd have this, but the world's just against me, and uh, always looking for pity, and uh, trying to use the sympathy of others to manipulate them into what they wanted. And so I grew up always trying to be enough for her and became a people pleaser because of it. Um, it damaged my self-esteem. And I was also bullied in school growing up very poor. So when I was 13, I met my first husband while I was in North Carolina visiting my grandmother and my cousin, a different cousin, introduced me to him. And aside from my brothers and my dad, he was the first guy that I ever felt safe around. Uh, I didn't get that icky sick feeling. And so, I don't know. I just, I remember he put his arm around me one afternoon. The sun was going down and I just felt safe and comfortable and protected. Um, and right before I left to go back to Tennessee, he asked me if he could kiss me rather than just doing it. And I thought that was sweet. And the best part was when I said no, he didn't push it and was okay with it and let it drop. So I go back to Tennessee 
and we were going to write letters back and forth to each other. So for the next three years, we did uh, write letters, but there would be long periods where we wouldn't hear from each other. And come to find out, his mom was blocking the letters from both of us. Um, so some of them didn't get through. But then he joined the military when he turned 18, and he's two years older than me. So he was 18 and I was 16. And while he was in basic training, he asked to come visit me, and he did for like a weekend, I think. And so after he went back, he asked me, he's like, I want you to marry me. And with me being very poor, and at the time we were facing eviction, my dad was living off of Social Security, like I was being bullied at school, um, like physically threatened. And so I saw it as a way out of the home I was in, you know, away from the drugs and alcohol, away from my younger brother who had mental health issues. And so I said yes. And my parents, uh, in Georgia, you can sign for someone under 18 to get married. And so my parents signed for me to get married at 16. Oh, my gosh. Uh, I remember my yeah, it was in hindsight, and as a mom now, especially with my oldest being 14, I was like, I would never, ever even consider it. Like, I don't care if I have to lock them up in the room. Like, that ain't happening. Um, let's but, let's uh, let's let's unpack a little bit of what you said. Let's because I want to go back to several points that you made because I think that they're. I, I don't want them to be lost on the bigger conversation because I think it plays all all into this. So. So you were molested by a cousin in your, in your like six or seven, you said. Yes. Okay. Now did, did anything ever happen because of that? I mean, did, did, did he get reported? Is he still around? I mean, was that, that was a traumatic experience, but you were molested by him and, and was that just something that got covered up under the rug and, and never discussed? Yeah, it pretty much got covered up. Um, I honestly don't even remember it at all. Uh, not the occasion my mom told me about. Uh, she told me she was babysitting him one day for her sister, my aunt, and um, that she had come in the room and neither one of us had clothes on and he was on top of me. Mm. I don't remember that, but I do remember other occasions where he'd come to my grandmother's house and I'd be riding my bike and he'd ask me to let him touch my butt or to kiss me or stuff like that. And I was like, no. And so I just distanced myself from him. Um, was he older? Yes. He's, I want to say somewhere between five and seven years older than me. I can never remember exactly how much. I know he's older than my older brother and he's three years older than me. So, so you were, you were six five. and he was like 13. Yeah. Then when you were 13, so your parents let somebody watch you, and this guy was in his 50s, and yeah. this guy took advantage of you and abused you as well. Did anything happen with him? Did that get uncovered? Did anything? Did anybody say anything about it? No, and that's partially my fault. Um, well, it was, I don't want to say my fault. It was a choice I made. My mom had been sexually molested as a child um, by her father, and I believe that uh, she had said he had done the same thing to my cousin, so I think that's where my cousin thought it was okay. 
And my grandmother and my aunt had always covered up and never spoke of what uh, happened to my mom, even though she said they knew they uh, they were aware of what her father did to her. So, uh, sorry. Um, so it's okay. Nothing was ever done to my cousin. And then I want to say I was somewhere around 10 or 11, closer to that than 12 when the guy they knew um, did what he did. Uh, it was somebody that I think my dad knew from working in a factory before he became disabled because he got hurt working in a factory. But I know they would go to his house and my dad would drink with them um, and had also bought weed from them. And so I guess because they didn't have any uh, family or friends close by, and that falls into where I believe my mom was a covert narcissist. Most of the time, narcissists will isolate you from family and friends in order to maintain control. And so my mom would go around her family, but she kept my dad's family at a distance. Um, and so when they had to go to the food stamp office without me and my brothers, because they had tried once with us, but I guess we were acting up and not behaving, and they had to leave. So the next day, they had him watch us. And he took us out to a boat ramp, me and my brothers, and parked in the parking lot and walked way over by the water side. And you know those concrete picnic tables that you see in like rest areas? There yeah. was one there. And he pulls a, a shotgun shell out of his pocket and breaks it open and shows my brothers that you can light the gunpowder on fire. And they thought it was so cool. And so they wanted him to do it again. And he's like, well, that's the only one I had on me. You'll have to go back to the truck and get another one so I can do it again. And they were like, okay, let's go. And I was going to go with them because I didn't really know this man at all. I don't remember ever seeing him before that point. And he's like, no, you stay here. Your brothers can go get it. And the truck was parked far enough away from the picnic table you couldn't even see it. So it was going to take them a while to get there and back. And uh, thankfully, it didn't go very far, but it was far enough to still be damaging emotionally. He had... Uh, pinned me against the picnic table and was touching me and telling me it was okay. My parents were his friend. They wouldn't mind. And, you know, just trying to make it okay. And then when he hears my brother's coming back, he tries pulling me over towards the bushes and the trees and having us hide. And when they got close enough, I screamed for him. And my brothers were like, what are y'all doing? And, um, I tried pulling away from him. He was holding on to my arm. And he's like, oh, we were just playing a game, playing hide and seek. And I told my older brother, I was like, I want to go home. And he's like, well, I want to see the shotgun shell. And I was like, no, I want to go home now. And I guess he could tell I was upset. And we get back in the truck, and the guy wanted me to sit. Cause it was a you know, single cab, like S10 style truck. Wanted me to sit all the way against him. And I refused. I was like, no, Milo, my younger brother, I was like, he can sit there. I'm sitting by the window. We get home, and he just drops us off and leaves. Like, my parents aren't there, nothing. He just leaves. And so we sit on the front porch until my parents got home. And I told my brothers what had happened. 
and I want to say my older brother uh, said something about telling mom and dad, and I told him, I said, no, because you know if I tell him what happened, especially with what mom had been through, they'd kill him. Like, my dad's a Vietnam veteran, or was a Vietnam veteran, he passed away. Um, he had PTSD, you know, and I was his only girl, and me and him were very, very close. Um, so I know he would have went after him. Um, so I made the choice to not tell my parents because I knew I was coming up on my teenage years and I would need my parents there for me and not either dead or in prison. Um, so for many years, I didn't tell them. I want to say it was somewhere between 16 and 19 years old before I ever told my parents what had happened. And they were upset at first, um, but they confirmed what I said. They were like, darn right, I would have, you know. Um, so, and then when it came out, they were like, well, we could look at the statute of limitations. Maybe you could still press charges on them. And they got to talking about how I'd have to go in from the courts and basically have to relive what I went through. And I just wanted it to be over. I wanted it to be like it had never happened. Um, and it wasn't until a few years ago that I learned, or about a year ago, I learned that we can't uh, heal from or move past what we've been through by burying it inside uh, because it will fester and a container can only hold so much. Eventually it comes out and it does more harm trying to hold it in and bury it than it does, you know, dealing with it appropriately. So that's something I've had to learn as an adult uh, through everything I've been through, but you have to face it. It's painful and it's hard, but it's worth it to learn how to process it in an appropriate manner. Yeah, I can. I can imagine. I can. Uh, I can understand the festering. I can understand the. It creates problems and bubbling. You know, I'm a big advocate of of personal therapy, and I went through six years of counseling myself. And I remember my counselor. You know, about two years in, it had been two years. He asked me a question, and it was relative to me being an eight year old boy, and then. Uh, like all of a sudden, this just flood of emotion came out of me in tears and all that stuff from stuff that I had been told and said when I was eight. Like it just, here I was a, you know, probably a 43, 44 year old male at the time. And all of a sudden this eight year old boy inside of me just was, was screaming and crying and it, and it came out through me. So I, I get it. I understand that. So the secondary um, question I was going to ask is because of that experiences, the collectant experience, first at six and then at 10. Um, I can imagine that that played into how you dressed and this idea of, you know, oversized sweatshirts and baggy clothes and all that other stuff. You didn't want to come across as somebody that was attractive because I I feel like I'm reading between the lines here, but I feel like in your mind, you were like, I don't want to experience that again. So I'm going to make myself you know, as unattractive as I can, because I don't want anybody to think of me as a target, which then created the problems to some extent at school, because anybody that's different, anybody that doesn't conform, anybody that's not like everyone else is going to be ostracized and teased and bullied and all that other stuff, which then has the effect of ruining your self-esteem, you know, and, and making you feel isolated and alone. So it was like a compound effect, correct? Absolutely, 
So the first person that expresses some sincerity your way, the first person that that seems like he treats you well, the first person that comes along that can offer you an escape out of what you consider to be really not great circumstances, whether it be being very poor or whether it being in a household where you just you just feel stifled or you, you can't be yourself or you, you don't feel safe first person that comes along. So you're married off at 16 years old. Yep. Wow. Now you, you talk about your first marriage and, and the father of your boys, him being a grandiose narcissist. So when did you start to see that side? Well, my kid's father was actually my second husband. Um, what happened so, with the first guy, the guy that was the military guy? Yeah. Uh, well, his first duty station was in Germany, and so I moved over there with him. And I didn't have my license stateside, so I couldn't get my driver's license to drive over there. Um, we lived in on-base housing, and the door locks, like there, it was in an apartment building with like a stairwell, and it, the door, the only door to the apartment, other than the balcony, was. Uh, open to the stairwell but it locked with a deadbolt from both the inside and out like you couldn't just unlock the door yourself unless you had the key and he had told me that housing only gave him one key and that he'd have to get copies made but he never made copies and so he would go to work and or go to pt first in the morning and then he'd come back and change for work and he'd go to work and i was in the apartment all day long alone um we Would he lock you in? Phone. Yeah. Oh yeah, so my gosh! While he was at work, so yeah. he would physically lock you into the apartment until he returned home. Yes, and the only time I was ever allowed to go anywhere was if he was with me. Even um, on a few occasions when I asked him to leave the door unlocked, or I'd make sure to be awake as he left and would kind of stand with the door open telling him bye. Um, so there was a few occasions he didn't, and I'd walk to the mailbox, and he got upset with me for going, told me that he could have went on his way home. There was no reason for me to go. Um, but mail was the only way I had contact with my parents, except for when occasionally got a phone card to call back home, and then I'd only get, like, 15 to 20 minutes to talk to him because of the uh, rates of calling from Germany to Tennessee. Um, so was this when he was home? Mm-hmm. So was, was this, as you reflect back, was this a control thing or was this a jealousy thing or both? Uh, I want to say both, but he was definitely very controlling and possessive. Um, like, even when he was home, I couldn't even go to the bathroom, whether I was using the bathroom or taking a shower, without him following me in there. I was never alone when he was home. Um, he had a drinking problem. Uh, we always had multiple bottles of liquor on the top of our refrigerator, and um, he also had a temper, which, for the most part, part he never turned towards me until I finally told him I wanted to divorce but um, at first I didn't think anything was wrong because my parents 
obviously didn't have the greatest relationship between my mom being the narcissist and uh, both of them being alcoholics. You know, there was a lot of yelling, arguing, name-calling, throwing things. My mom would throw things at my dad. And so I'd never seen what a healthy relationship would be. I'd seen it in the movies, but then with what I'd seen in my life, that was just make-believe. It didn't exist. Um, so I didn't think nothing of what I was going through. Um, and I figured it was normal until one day, uh, he had gotten in trouble at, um, on base. He had punched one of his NCOs because I guess he was saying something about me being so young or whatever. And he got angry and punched him. So the army made him take anger management. So one day while he was in one of those meetings, his chain of command, who was a sergeant, came by the house to check on me. And I had to go out on the balcony to talk to him because I couldn't unlock the door to go see him or let him in. And I go out there and I'm talking to him. And at first, I was confused while they were even there. And they're like, well, we just wanted to check on you. You know, we never see you. We don't see you at the FRG meetings, you know, the meetings for family members or whatever. Uh, just wanted to make sure you were all right. And then in my head, I was like, I need to watch what I say because if I say something that, you know, comes back on him and they're going to tell him and then he's going to be mad at me and take it out on me. So I was like, yeah, no, we're fine. We're great. He's good to me, you know, and I tried to get him to leave as soon as possible. Um, but that was a turning point for me because it told me, you know, something must not be right if they felt the need to check on me. So it was a big eye-opener for sure. So you you end up asking him for a divorce. He's upset about that, but obviously you get through that. So, you know, you, you divorce him. How quickly after that do you meet your second husband, who is your boy's father? I... I want to say I met him a month after uh, I told my first husband that I wanted to divorce. So we weren't even legally divorced yet. Um, and I wish I would have taken the time to heal and take care of my mental well-being before moving on into another relationship. But um, because I had left him, I had to go right back to the family that I had tried escaping from in the first place. Uh, my younger brother's bipolar and an alcoholic and, uh, you know, my mom and everything. Was, I didn't want to be there. And so along comes this grandiose narcissist that seemed like a knight in shining armor, you know, young, attractive, wants to settle down, have kids and, you know, was working at the time and all these things seemed wonderful. Um, so it was only a month after leaving my first husband that I met him. And let's see. How long after that before you guys were married? Uh, well, we didn't get married until after my oldest was born. So, but I moved to North Carolina with him in Tennessee. I want to say it was three months after I met him. And because he had gotten in a fight with his mom and that's who he had been staying with. And he, his dad's side of the family lives in North Carolina. So we moved there. And within six months of me meeting him, 
I was pregnant with my oldest son, which was a huge blessing for me because, shut up, Chad. Um, it was a huge blessing for me. So while I was married to my first husband, I had four miscarriages. Um, and all I'd ever wanted to be in life since I was really little was a mom. You know, people dream of being lawyers, doctors, whatever. I just wanted to be a mom. And so when I had the miscarriages, I didn't think I would ever have that opportunity. So then when I got pregnant with my oldest, it was a huge blessing. But I'd already started seeing, you know, I guess you could say warning signs or me being unhappy with him before I got pregnant because, you know, I was isolated from family and friends. I was like 12 hours away from them. Um, and he, we didn't go around his family a whole lot either. So I was just at home and there until he got home from work. And then he would start drinking. And um, the drinking in the beginning was only like a couple times a month, but it quickly progressed to more frequently. And by the end was a daily thing. And he also smoked weed, which... I didn't judge him for at the time because, you know, my parents had done it. So I was like, okay, whatever. I don't want to do it, but, you know, I can't control what you do. But it got really bad uh, to the point where after my kids were born, he'd come home and before he'd even hug us or hug the kids or anything, he'd go in the bathroom and get high and then he'd come out. I remember thinking to myself, you know, what's so wrong with us that he can't be around us while sober, you know? I, I didn't understand, and it hurt really bad, because even if he didn't care enough about me, like, how could somebody not care enough about his kids, you know? So. That must have been really, really challenging to deal with, and as you, as you sit here, I see Jen's face, she's... Uh, probably think the same thing that uh, I'm thinking, which is just aghast, you know, like it's just, you know, Jen and I both didn't come from, um, I didn't come from a big family, Jen did, but like Jen didn't have like a lot of real love, I would say, is that a fair statement? Yeah. Yeah, she didn't have a lot of love. I mean, she didn't have abuse per se. She had mental, I think, abuse. Mm -hmm games play and stuff right. I, th I think her mom is a narcissist uh the same way it's all about her and she would control the kids by pitting them against each other and she had to be the ringleader yeah. of everything right yeah. but like we, we we both had a strong desire I, I had a much better upbringing than that but bounced around a lot as a kid moved around a lot before I was 10 and and uh, had my own challenges but you know, we sit here and, and listen to that, and I would think the same thing. Like, you, you just want the best for your kids, and so it's hard for me to hear somebody really, you know, sounding like they didn't, they didn't even care. You know, both your parents and this grandiose narcissist. Well, and, I, and I'll be fair with you. Okay, you might not know this about me, but I am a recovering narcissist. It used to always be about me, and I think losing everything in 09, my, similar, my story is very similar to Dr. Dave. Like, I, I really, out of that, was reborn, both from a faith perspective, but then also attempted to rebuild myself through six years of, of therapy and counseling. And, you know, I have those tendencies, but it's, it, that's been far removed from me now. I'm a, I'm a much different person than I used to be. So I understand 
narcissism. I can see it in other people uh, quickly. And so when you say grandiose um, narcissism, you know, describe what you mean by that. Well, where a covert narcissist is the, oh, poor me, the world's against me, what about me? The grandiose narcissist is like very arrogant, has an over entitled sense of self worth. They're the only one that matters. Everything's supposed to be about them. The world revolves around them. And then also, they can't accept blame for anything ever. Like, you can try and say, hey, you should see a therapist. No, it's not me, it's you. And say, you know, you shouldn't be drinking so much or, you know, stop smoking weed. Well, I wouldn't drink or do drugs if it wasn't for you. Like, he told me all those things. And then the gaslighting um, is awful because it's almost like they live in their own version of reality. And they're so sure of themselves that by the time they tore you down to nothing between the belittling, name-calling, constant criticism, you already have, like, no self-worth. And then they're sitting here and telling you, you know, I can tell them, hey, you did this or you said this and it upset me. And he'll be like, I didn't do that. I didn't say those things. And I'm like, I know you said them. I saw you do them, you know. But he's so sure that it didn't happen because it would make him look bad. He's always got this, like, perfect image of himself. He'd be so sure of himself that it didn't happen. And that's the thing with gaslighting. Like, you end up questioning your own sanity. It's like, am I remembering it wrong? Do I, you know, have memory problems? And I've always had a phenomenal memory. But when you're married to somebody and you love them, and you trust them. So when they're telling you, no, this didn't happen, no, I didn't say that, you think, well, I trust them, so they must be right, it must be me. And you internalize it, and you blame yourself, and for the longest time, I'd sit there and, you know, tell myself, well, if I try harder, if I do more, if me and the kids don't do these things, he won't get mad and yell, but no matter what we did, it was never enough. He'd always find something. Like, I could spend eight hours a day cleaning the house while he was at work and when he got home he would find the one thing I didn't get to and tear me down about that and plus at me for that and never acknowledge any of the things I did do so it just I know the biggest cues with a grandiose narcissist is the extreme arrogance and entitlement no I can I can see that and I and I see bits of that in how I used to behave. Um, I don't think I was that overt about it, but there was certainly a feeling that, you know, because I was the provider, because I was this, because I was that, I was working, I, you know, I, I use that as an excuse. Would you, would you say that's fair? Yeah. I mean, when she's talking about it, does, does that remind mm-hmm. you of how I used to be? Mm-hmm. Like, to, like a sliding scale. Right. Like, I, I didn't really gaslight you, no. I don't think, mm-hmm. but like, it was all about me. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> Jen's like, no. No, go ahead. I was going to say, I know in my research, uh, and I've spoke to a lot of different people in various clubhouse rooms on the topic of narcissism, all of us have some version of narcissistic traits in us, and we can have the trait without having full-on narcissistic personality disorder. And so I don't know if you were full-on a narcissist or just had some of the traits, because usually at least from what I've read, a 
actual narcissistic personality disorder, they won't ever acknowledge that there's anything wrong with them. Like, I, I tell people all the time, I was like, if you're even questioning if you're a narcissist, you can't be a narcissist. Because a narcissist would say, no, that's not me. It's all you. Mm. So, Yeah, I was, no, I was very good about... So, so maybe I was not quite narcissist, but maybe yeah. highly egocentric. Yeah. Your ego is right. not your amigo. Your, my ego is not my amigo? <laughs> That's right. Uh, it's not my amigo? <laughs> no. Oh. Never. I guess my ego isn't my amigo. <laughs> so maybe, maybe I had an ego complex. I don't know. I, don't, I just know I'm different than I used to yes. be, and that's because of God that's and right. Jesus. Amen. And Praise good therapy. Praise the Lord. Hallelujah. And, and good therapy. I had some good counseling, <laughs> you know, in that mix. But uh, it took a lot of work. It took a lot of work on me to change me and right. it took me wanting exactly. to change me you have to want it to change me yep so um so i i get the picture of the grandiose narcissist so you end up having three kids with this guy you end up spending 11 years with him and things did not work out the way you expected and so eventually you find a way to get out from underneath his control and his gaslighting and his narcissism. And, and probably at the time you do that, you feel as low as you've ever felt because the whole time this guy is tearing you down, tearing you down, tearing you down for 11 years. Absolutely. So was, <laughs> then, then, so did the, the pattern repeat? Because I can only imagine now you got three kids. Now you, you still feel isolated and alone. So like I, I could see how men, would be your escape from not wanting to go back to where you came from. Right. And one of the reasons I stayed so long is I was terrified of being a single mom. Um, I was afraid that I wouldn't be able to provide for them and I'd end up losing them or he'd take them away from me or manipulate them into, you know, not wanting to be with me. I had started going to school my dad passed away in December 2011, and that was very hard for me because despite my dad being an alcoholic and um, things, him and I were very close. Like, he was my best friend, my biggest supporter, um, always lifted me up and believed in me when I didn't believe in myself. And so losing that was very, losing him was very hard. Um, and if it wouldn't have been for my kids, like, being there and keeping me going when I didn't even want to eat or anything. Um, that was my first experience with the seven stages of grief. Like I felt myself go through all of them after he passed. Um, but I was still married to their kid's dad at that time. So the next year in 2012, I already knew I wanted to divorce him even before my dad died. The last year he was alive, I told my dad, I was like, I'm going to leave my kid's father. And he's like, no, you aren't. You know, me and your mom said that we were going to for many years, but we've been married 30 years. You know, you won't leave them. I'm like, no, Daddy, I'm telling you right now. I don't know when. I don't know how. But I will. And so in 2012, I enrolled in the University of Phoenix online because my kids were, I think, five, three, and two at the time. So I wanted to earn my degree so I would have something to fall back on and be able to provide for me and the kids in order to leave. Because I knew if I left, their father wouldn't provide any support. And so for a year, year and a half, I was in school. 
I had a 3.7 GPA, like I was doing really good, earned 30 credits towards my associate's degree, but then the classes started getting harder, and I had asked him to just occupy the boys, not cook, not clean, not anything significant, just keep them from knocking on the door for a few minutes so I could get some extra study time in, and Something that you would think would be a simple request caused a huge argument. And he started telling me that I was being selfish by going to school. I was only thinking of myself, uh, that I should only be focusing on the house and the kids. And he even went as far as to tell my kids that mommy don't care about you. She don't want to spend time with you. All she cares about is herself. And that hurt me very deeply because... Like I've already said, my kids are my everything, and I didn't want them for a second thinking that they didn't matter to me or weren't enough because I'd went through that with my own mom, and I didn't want them to feel that ever. And so I ended up dropping out, and I think a year or two later, I started to leave them. I even got an apartment and moved out, but with no education, I only had my GED, no work history because I'd always been just like a housewife um all I could get was a fast food job at McDonald's with part-time hours and that wasn't even enough to keep the apartment their father was refusing any support to help with the boys um I had food stamps but that was it um and so he would go back and forth between being like the knight in shining armor a narcissist will do to draw you in and then being his true self, and he'd be all, I'm going to take the kids from you. You can't financially provide for them. And he'd go back and forth, begging me to come back, and then using fear tactics. And eventually I went back out of fear. Um, I didn't go back because I still loved them. I didn't go back because I thought things would get better. Um, I just I was afraid of losing the kids. And I tried very hard to make it work for four more years. Um but like you said, I reached my breaking point. Um, I woke up one morning and, well, it was Christmas of 2017. And that year, he wouldn't get a factory job or anything that would allow for any advancement. He only made $9 an hour. And all his extra money, um, because he was just doing, like, side work, like, mowing lawns and stuff for a guy that he bought weed off of and all the extra money he would get was going to drugs and alcohol and we didn't even have money to buy them Christmas and I had to borrow money from my nephew's grandmother which isn't even related to me it's his mom's mother and that Christmas you know I, I wake up and they had gifts and my kids were grateful and happy but it was so little and I felt that they deserved so much better than that and if he wasn't going to provide it for them I would um it still took me six months to leave um because I was severely depressed I was homeschooling them at the time and so I would wake up in the morning and get their lessons started, um, feed them breakfast and stuff, and I'd go lay down on my bed, and I'd stay there all day, 
Um, there was one day where I was like, well, I love to read. I love to crochet. I should do something other than just lay here. And I pulled the stuff out and I looked around at it and I was just like, eh, nah, I don't feel like it. And I pushed it to the side. But it clicked in my head at that moment that, you know, my kids crocheting, reading, these things, it's stuff that brings me joy, things that I love, but I wasn't feeling the, uh, joy. I wasn't feeling love. And that's when I knew something was wrong. Um, I didn't go to therapy then. I wished I would have. Um, I was afraid that he would use my anxiety and depression against me to keep the kids from me. Um, so instead, I asked him for us to move back to Tennessee, where I was at least two hours away from family, uh, like my grandmother and extended cousins and stuff, rather than um, 12 hours away from anybody I know. And I guess you could say at that point, I started planning my leave. Like, I knew I was leaving. I just didn't know the how or when yet. Um, when we got to Tennessee, I got a job at another McDonald's, and I told him I wanted a divorce. Um, things went pretty bad. Um, one night, I had a guy babysitting my kids because his dad was supposed to be home in time to watch the kids for me to go to work because I chose to work nights while he worked days. That way I could still work and earn money to leave, but um, not have to pay a babysitter because I'm minimum wage. By the time you pay babysitter, there's nothing left, um, which is what kept me from working most of their childhood. And so, uh, but... Conveniently that day, I think he did it on purpose um, because he calls at the last minute and he's like, well, you'll just have to call him and tell him that you can't come in because I won't be there to watch the kids. So I asked the only other person I knew in the general area to watch my kids and he was watching them. I get to work and my supervisor tells me that my babysitter called and I needed to call him. And of course, with already having anxiety, I had lots of fears run through my head. And I called him, and he's like, well, their dad got home, and he took me home, and the boys are with him now. And I was like, but I told you to watch them until I got home, you know? And he's like, well, I didn't know what to do. I'm like, okay. So my supervisor knew I was upset. And I left, and or she told me I could go home early. And I had to walk to and from work because I didn't have a car. And so I'm walking home, and I round the corner to where I can see my driveway. And by this time, it was like 10 o'clock at night, and his truck was not in the driveway. So I called him because, you know, it was a weeknight. The kids should have been home and in bed by then, not out wherever. At first, he doesn't answer the first two or three times. On the third time, he calls me back. I could hear in his speech that his words were slurring. So I knew he had been drinking, uh, which heightened my fears. I asked him where he was. He said the store, but it was a small town. Almost all the stores would have already been closed. Um, he said they'd be home in a little bit. And it felt like an eternity before they got home. So did he have the kids with him? Yes. 
And he'd gone to a bar or something? He went to his brother's house, who always drank heavily as well. Um, so I guess he was there talking to him and um, about me wanting a divorce. Because by then I'd already told him I wanted the divorce, but we were still living together. Um, and so as soon as he walked in the door, I could smell the liquor on his breath. Uh, like it was so strong and almost knocked me down and that upset me a lot because my kids were in the car like anything could have happened and I knew the distance he would have to drive to get from his brother's house to our home and there's this big bridge you have to go over water and just all sorts of things ran through my head so I got very upset and I told him I was like you've been drinking no, I just had one beer. It was a half a beer. You can ask Caleb. You know, started trying to drag our kids into it. And, um, but he had drank so much in the 11 years. Like, I could tell the difference between beer on his breath and wild turkey on his breath. Like, he had been drinking liquor that night. Um, and, you know, slurred speech. He's stumbling over. Um, he becomes very aggressive when drinking. And he starts yelling and arguing. I had been sleeping in the bedroom alone for a couple weeks since I told him I wanted a divorce, and he had been sleeping on the couch. But he decides that night, nope, he's going to sleep in there because he paid the rent, and that's what he was going to do. I just wanted to get in the room to get my purse and medicine, my work uniform, and leave. And so he's trying to block the door, and I tried pulling on his arm to pull him out of the way, but he's much stronger than me. And uh, he shoved his elbow backwards into my stomach. It threw me off balance, and my elbow hit the back doorknob. Um, and I guess you could say I literally had a breaking point because I did the only other thing I could think of. And I bit him on his shoulder blade really hard. Uh, I ended up drawing blood, but he hit his knees, and I was able to get past him and get my phone and purse. Um, I went outside and called 911. I figured if I couldn't get him to calm down or let us leave, you know, calmly, then maybe a police officer could. Well, while I was on the phone with 911, I hear him on the phone saying, yeah, I called y'all earlier and told y'all that when she gets home from work, she was going to cause problems. And I'm like, you called hours ago saying I was going to cause problems. Like, it made me feel like I'd been set up and provoked to losing my timber or whatever. Um, so when the police officer gets there, um, he sees my kid's father's first, and uh, he had a knife on him because he always carried a pocket knife. He took the knife off of him and then asked if I had any weapons. No. Um, my bruise didn't show up till the next day, but his bite mark did. So that night I got arrested for domestic assault and had to hug my kids by and, uh, I had to leave and for two weeks I couldn't see or contact my kids at all. I begged the police officer not to leave my kids there with him, but because I didn't know where he had his weed or anything. I couldn't prove anything. And 
So I had no choice and had no idea if they were safe or not or anything. And uh, the cop ended up putting in the report or whatever that the knife was on me. So I couldn't have knives or guns or whatever. And for two weeks, I'd have to wait for the arraignment before I could even contact him to see the kids. And up to that point, I'd never spent more than two days without them. So having to go two weeks was excruciating. And then I also had to sit in a jail cell for 13 hours, which is mandatory by Tennessee law for domestic violence. Um, so Safe I to say no, that that was, that was a bottom. That was a bottom for you. <laughs> that was... It was the worst. So I guess, you know, as, as we... Um, as, as I see here, because I know you from Clubhouse, and so, like, I can only imagine how traumatic this was, but I, f- I feel like you are a completely different person now. I feel like you are a completely different version of yourself, because when you describe what people were able to do to you and how you reacted and the situation you were in, it just seems unfathomable to me right now that that is the Callie Brown that I enjoy listening to and hearing from on Clubhouse. So I guess the question as we kind of start to close out the show and and wrap up is how did you find this version? How did you get to the point where you are now? Because somebody that's listening, I'm sure there's somebody that's listening that's dealing with a narcissist. There's somebody that's listening that's dealing with a grandiose narcissist. There's somebody listening that dealt with molestation and bullying. And, I mean, it sounds like you've got a, a, a double, triple, quadruple helping of, you know, challenges and problems in your life. How did you get to the point where you are now where I feel like you're so well-adjusted and so much different than the person you're describing? Well, um... Shortly after I left him, um, I was at my lowest, like you said, and I was even contemplating suicide, like it was that bad. Um, I felt like I had failed my kids, you know, and I couldn't protect them or provide for them. And the beginning of the turnaround was one night when I reached out to Shane, um, We were barely even acquaintances at the time. We had met through a mutual friend, and I had nobody else to talk to. And I was having those thoughts that night. And his reaction honestly surprised me. Like, it's not how I would suggest somebody talk to somebody that's suicidal. Like, he was almost angry, which now that I know a lot of his backstory, I understand why he was angry. Um, But... Yeah, he was mad. He was saying, look, if you're going to talk like this or you're thinking about that, I can't talk to you. Like, I'm not going to do it. And it made me mad and I was upset. Um, But it began our friendship and we talked more. And he helped me through the beginning of turning around. I went to three different therapists before I found a good fit for me. Um, The first one tried forcing me to talk about the childhood traumas, which I was not ready to talk about yet. Um, The second one wouldn't remember from one meeting to the next what we had even spoke about and was only meeting with me for 30 minutes a few times a month. So, of course, you don't make no progress that way. 
Um, but once I finally found the one I'm at now, a good fit for me, um, that made a huge difference on my progress. But also in finding Ula, uh, last year I was laid off for the pandemic and I saw an ad on Facebook, which, you know, I use Young Living Essential Oil, so I'd already heard of the Ula guys. But when I saw that advertisement to schedule a discovery call with an advisory coach, I was like, you know what, I'm sitting here not working anyways, why not at least see what they say? And I got the tremendous blessing of getting to talk to Kristen Warnacka, whose story is in the Ula for Women book, Under Fear. And she had told me a little bit about her own story, and it resonated so much with what I had been through. And I'm like, wow, you know, she's been through this, but she's so full of life and energetic and positive and upbeat and, you know, making a living on helping other people that have been through it or, you know, encouraging people. And I was like, I want that, you know, I was like, I'd never thought of being a coach, never thought of any type of speaking or authoring or definitely not YouTube or podcast. Um, it was unimaginable. And I ordered the book and I read her story and cried <laughs> because the things she felt and said was thoughts that I'd had myself uh, with my marriage with my kid's father. And so I was like, okay, this is it, you know, and in that call, she made me, um, well, didn't make me, she asked me to set three goals, and I didn't see any way possible they would happen, um, because I was unemployed, no income, three kids living in a two-bedroom apartment, uh, they were sleeping on the couch, because we had a roommate, um, like, it was rough, I, I definitely didn't, I wasn't optimistic at all, uh, I could find the negative and any positive at that time. Um, but she had me set the goal to move into a three-bedroom within six months um, so my kids would have a bedroom, to re-enroll in school, finish my degree, and I wanted to improve my credit score and pay off debt. Well, not even a month later, <laughs> we moved into a three-bedroom in the country, and have been here since. It's the longest I've lived anywhere since leaving my kids' father's. And now my kids also have stability with it. Uh, in March, I re-enrolled in school for my bachelor's degree in business management. And I earned a resiliency scholarship to pay for part of my tuition. Um, in the first term, I only had to take four classes, but I had completed seven. Um, and I've paid off, gosh, over $4,000 in debt. And also paid cash for my coaching certification. And it's just funny because in July of last year, I made these goals and I'm like, yeah, it'd be nice, but I don't see it. Like, I didn't believe it at all, but I was like, okay, I'll trust the process, as they say, and just stuck with it and been in the coaching program. I'd say the two biggest things that really turned things around for me is in the coaching program or someone that I connected with that they left and get exactly where I thought first. Mentioned doing a gratitude journal and to not only write what you're grateful for, but why you're grateful for it. And when I first started out, like it was small things like I'm grateful for my kids. I'm grateful it's funny and I don't have to drive to therapy in the rain. It was little things, but I stuck with it and made it a daily habit. And 
that really shifted my mindset a lot from seeing the negative and a positive and waiting for the bad to happen to seeing the good even when things go bad. And then the other is having a self-care routine, uh, being a recovering people pleaser, um, learning to take time for myself and take care of me and that in doing so it isn't selfish, it's necessary. Um, cause if you don't pour into yourself, your cup will run empty. Um, those are the two biggest things for sure. Wow. Wow. I didn't, I didn't know that you knew, uh, Kristen. We just met Kristen Warnaka at the ULA summit and she was incredible. She is everything that you imagine her to be. If you've not met her personally, she is, um, She's, she's awesome. And so, um, I just want to acknowledge a couple other things for those that are listening right now that may have just caught this podcast episode. Um, Callie's fiance, Shane is our immediately previous episode. So if you want to go back and hear his story, um, it's a powerful story about, uh, narcolepsy and, uh, he did great. So that's, uh, Callie's fiance. And then Ula, for those that are listening, Ula is a um, digital framework, a lifestyle framework developed by two guys, Dr. Dave and Dr. Troy. If they want to change the world, you can subscribe to it, but it teaches you how to rise higher in life with a balanced or bias towards balance, but seven key areas, faith, family, friends, fitness, fun, field, finance. And um, it's a great, great system to plug into, especially, you know, like I think the example that you have, you, you've said this before, I've heard you say this offline, you've never had good examples of what living a balanced, healthy life, relationships, etc., have been. So ULA can be a framework example for people to plug into to show them how to do life, mm-hmm. how to live life better, and how to live it more balanced, and how to address things like blockers, things that hold you back, fear, guilt, self-sabotage, envy, laziness, you know, those types of things, lack of focus. Well, Callie, your story has been really, really powerful, my friend. Thank you so much for sharing, giving us some of that backstory. And it's just so um, encouraging to me on several levels as a podcast, Hope, doing a Hope radio podcast, a a show about hope. You give me hope (laughs) that no matter what circumstance somebody's going through, um, you can rise out of it. You can make a difference. You can change Mm -hmm your circumstances if you focus and are diligent in it. And then you, you also really are a testament to, in, in my opinion, doing the work of ULA, you know, to go through the process and to actually use the framework to change your life. Yeah. You're an example of that. So I just want to give you some celebration and some kudos. Good job. Well done. Well done. Like navigating the trials and tribulations that you've been thrown. Well done well done rising up out of that Mm -hmm. and changing your life and being the best mother that you can be to your kids and being the best fiance that you can be for Shane because he raves about you and with his disadvantage and with narcolepsy that he deals with, he, he, he firmly believes he wouldn't be there, be here if it wasn't for you. So I just want to say, you know, good job. Well done. You're awesome. Thank you. I just want to add that um, one of the unexpected blessings about ULA is it not only lets you get your life back in balance, but for a long time, I felt very alone and isolated and 
then after the fact, I felt like because my parents were passed away, you know, I had no family to turn to. Ula has an amazing, phenomenal community of positive, encouraging, uplifting people. And I know at any moment that I'm feeling down, there's tons of people that I can reach out to that genuinely care about me and seeing me do well and stay on the right path. And they always know the right things to say. So even it goes far beyond the lifestyle framework, the community and just having good people in your life. Like you said about me not having the good examples of healthy relationships. Um, there's so many husband and wife couples and Ula, uh, like you and Jen and, um, uh, oh gosh, Cheryl and I can't remember her, Matt, there you go. I'm not saying I couldn't remember his name, but, uh, I call them the Ula power couples and just seeing how y'all operate as a couple and individually and encouraging each other and just. It's amazing, and it gives me hope that, you know, healthy relationships are possible and what they should look like, so it's easier to understand what a healthy or a unhealthy relationship uh, is when you see what it should be, because I didn't know, because I only knew the bad, so it's great to have that example of the good, for sure. Well, thank you so much for that, for that confidence. And by the way, Jen wrote a section in that Ula for Women book. I don't know if you knew this or not, but she wrote (laughs) a section in fun because she just exudes fun and she is joy and she is happy. So in that Ula for Women book, Jen's got a guest authorship. The guys asked her to write something on fun. So you can check that out as well. So I definitely will. I have my copy right here and I admit I haven't read the entire book. I've through it and kind of opened up and I feel kind of like when I read my Bible I just let it fall to wherever and I read where I'm at and it usually works you know but I'll be honest fun's an area I lack really bad (laughs) I focus on field and finance and family so yeah, I need to work on my fun. So well, I'll you check you, out her story for sure. <laughs> she, if you follow her on Instagram, she's at Pink Cupcake Girl. She just exudes fun. Her <laughs> stories are the best. She she always has got either some food related thing or fitness yeah. related thing or fun related thing. Let's, it's either food, fun, or fitness. Let's just say my fun oh. wheel is like at the max. Ten out of ten. <laughs> you know, she has to drag. She has to drag me into fun. Yeah. You know, she she does. She oh, she's wow. awesome at that. But. Uh, Thank you. Thank you once again for your truth and for your vulnerability and for what you shared. You've been an awesome, awesome hope dealer for us. So thank you very much. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me. So what did you think of that interview, Sean? I thought Callie was um, just truly remarkable, just incredible. I mean, um, like I really, really felt for her when she was describing like her first marriage mm-hmm. and being locked in oh, yeah. to the house. Yeah. You know, this guy would go to work and physically lock her in as the, you know, like I, I just can't, it's hard for me to, um, it's hard for me to understand that. Yeah. It's like real life stuff. Like that I know. really happens. It feels like that's the kind of stuff that happens in movies, but like that to have right. that happen, but just imagining what she might, must feel and then Mm-mm. to have somebody come check on her but then she's worried is he going to get upset and mad and this is going to blow up it's like just i mean this is real stuff people yeah. have to deal with it every single day but like it just felt like you know a home prison you know like control control well, control right yeah and then you know just dealing with um 
a grandiose narcissist. And, you know, I, th- there's a term out there that she used, and I don't know that everybody understands it. It's this whole concept of gaslighting. It's where you're made to believe that you're crazy for feeling legitimate feelings and or legitimate experiences based on whatever you're going through, but yet somebody else manipulates you and and hounds you into thinking that you're the one that has the problem when clearly they're the one that has the problem. That whole mm-hmm. gaslighting, that whole like it's it's like so confusing. Yeah, and it's and it's really unfortunate. And I think that there's a lot of that that goes on in uh, both mental and physical abusive race relationships, and yeah. so that's. What what you hear? But to have her be in the place she's at now, yeah. where she's got Shane Charles, where yes. they've got each other, where yes. she's in a respectful and considerate mm-hmm. relationship, and you know, it just it just shows that um, she's a survivor. She is a survivor, and it goes to show that no matter what you're dealing with, mm-hmm. it is but a season. True. Like it, even in the darkest places of her experience if she could have seen how she's living life now what she's doing the education she's getting a degree she's starting a business she's Mm -hmm. you know they're doing stuff together like they're they're rising and it's good and she's in a good relationship if she could see that i i just hope you know it's like i have a heart for people that are suicidal like i just think if they truly understood where they could be in as short as a few months a few years mm-hmm. etc how different their life could be yeah. and i think Callie's a great example of that yeah. you know like uh you can change your life Absolutely. and it can be completely different yeah. you know and so uh just you know i'm appreciative that she had the vulnerability and the strength the courage to come on and, and sure. share her story Yep. Yeah, so thank you, Callie. We'll look forward to seeing you on Clubhouse yes, again. Yes, thank you for being a hope dealer. Yeah, she's an awesome hope dealer for our yeah. podcast. And so, Jen, how do how do people connect with us if they want to be a hope dealer? If someone's out there listening in Radio Land that wants to share a story of hope, and we need hope dealers, we need hope dealers because the we world. want we want to spread hope throughout the whole world. The world needs more hope. Yeah, especially now. So, if you want to share a story, or you can reach out to us on Hope Radio Podcast on Facebook or Instagram and just send us a direct message there and we will respond as soon as we get it. And if you want to listen to more of us, then where can they hear us? There, We are on all. We're on Apple Podcasts. We're on Spotify, SoundCloud, Stitcher, you know, anywhere where you, Google Play, anywhere where you consume, mm-hmm. you know, audio only, talking version podcasts, you know, we're going to be there. So it's yeah. Hope Radio Podcast. Take us on a hike. Yeah. Right? Or a run. Download us and take us with you. Yes. We think that we're we're sometimes funny, sometimes inspiring. Yeah. Sometimes hope dealers ourselves. Yeah, we are hope dealers. We'd be fun to take out into God's country. Yes. I think a good good job. Right. Give me a high five. Oh, high five. All right. I think we should do this again. We'll do it again. Should we do another podcast? I know we will do another podcast. Good, because I got another interview coming. Oh, here oh, we go. More joke time coming soon. <laughs> I'm going to beat you this next time. You you mark my words, Jennifer. <laughs> I'm going to beat you. I'm not flinching. <laughs>